Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up? Big news here. I've received my wine cabinet. And, and this is something that I've been thinking for at least five years. And I finally decided that, okay, it's time to get a proper wine cabinet. The, the one that I got is from a brand called Euro Cave. And, and they do wine cabinets for long-term storage, like I think 10 years. And also for restaurants to, to keep the wines and bubbly in, in proper temperature before serving. So I got one for the new kitchen and the importer was installing uh, this just yesterday. And, and while he was doing that, I casually asked that if I ever fill the cabinets full of bottles, should I then perhaps next build like a small wine cellar in the backyard? And I was imagining, you know, the Hobbit style homes partially buried in ground with a small window and you could walk in and you would have your wines in there. And the guy looks at me, he looks at the backyard, he's thinking about the Finnish weather, especially in the winter. And then he goes, well, once you go beyond 1,000 bottles in long-term storage, he would start thinking of building a wine cellar. And even then, he'd probably just get three more cabinets and call it a day. He, it, it, it might be that he was, he was sort of implying that perhaps buy more cabinets in the future, but he was quite convincing in telling me that, yeah, that's not probably a great idea yeah or drink more wine yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't keep it drink it okay so and there's one thing here that that really struck me like when you say this uh, thing that you go into the ground and you have your cold storage um we do have that in sweden in in a few places still we were looking at a summer house or a, or a spare time house like a cabin a while ago and they had that they had a freezer and a fridge indoors but then they had this kind of cool storage. It never goes below freezing, but it's pretty cool. It's just like you say, it's a small grassy hill yeah. and there's a wooden door. Yeah. There's no windows here, just a wooden door. And you go in and, and it's like concrete tiling or these red beautiful tiles that they built, I don't know, a hundred years ago or so. Uh, I think this was built 1907 or 1909. So pretty old, more than a hundred years. And they use it as a wine cellar, um, but they don't have any wine there because it's a summer house and a lot of people made burglaries and, and broke in. So they, they had some wine, but they don't have any wine anymore <laughs> because someone took it. So now, now they have like the, the cushions for the outdoor furniture. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what we did was recently we went to something called Tosselila Somaland, which is a summer park. So it's a great outdoor experience for the entire family. And apparently we managed to get there during the low season. So this happened early June. Uh, so about a week ago right now, as of this recording. And at the same time, uh, we managed to hit the only day in the year where all the schools in the mun municipalities around the area had their graduation. So we had the entire park almost to ourselves. So I did rock climbing at 10 meters, and then you have to jump down. You cannot climb down because you have this wire connected to you and it's automated thing. So you have to just take a leap out and jump from 10 meters towards the ground. 
which is pretty scary. If another human would be holding the line and say, okay, you can jump and I will catch you with the line, that's fine. This is a machine where you see a wire just going up on top of the rock and you cannot see where it's going. So you hope it's just connected to something. And they say, well, just jump. It'll be fine, but you cannot see the wire. So I had to take a leap of faith and I jumped and I'm still here. So that's good. That was pretty, pretty scary. There was a lot of carousels and like Tivoli related activities like lottery and throwing balls at cans and stuff like that. But more importantly, and perhaps more so for the kids, a huge water slide uh, where you can measure the time, who's the quickest. And I think you can go five or six at a time, or was it four? I can't remember. So you can go in parallel. So there's like the entire slide can fit four people in four different rows and you get this uh, like rubber thing that you sit sit on or lay down on like a mattress. And that rubber together with the water slide shooting water creates an insane speed. So you can, and, and the water slide is huge, very long. And it takes like three and a half, four seconds to get down. So it, it's really quick. I don't know exactly how speedy that is, but of course, if you live close to one of the huge water parks, you know about those carous or those water slides already. This does not even come close to the biggest ones that we've seen, but it was a lot of fun. Um, next time, perhaps we expect to be joined by another 10,000 or so people instead of this time, like a hundred or so people. We had literally the entire thing to ourselves. So we had the four-year-old run around to the carousels where usually you have to wait in line, maybe 20 minutes to get on a ride with a teacup spinning around or whatever, small, small kid uh, carousels. But now we could just go. And then we went out, went around and went back in. Sometimes we even just stayed in the carousel and say, hey, uno mas, one more time, please. And they just started up again. And they asked us when we were done, do you want to go another one? And we did, you know, as long as the four-year-old wanted to do it, uh, we could just do that. It was a great day. Um, so that was uh, that was really fun. Um, I can definitely recommend that. Um, you know, as a another, as I've mentioned many times, I like to go do analog things with the family when I'm not working. This is one of those things. I can definitely recommend it. But even if you don't have kids or if you don't want to bring the kids, go to one of those adventure parks or one of those areas. You can really do things the analog way, but have a lot of fun. This was super cool. So, so that's that's what's been cooking for me. Sounds like a fun place. I will I will definitely keep this in mind. The next time we visit Sweden with the family, this might be a place to visit, but not when there's 10,000 others. Perhaps aim for the day with only a few other people. Alrighty, so today this is Azure Updates. So our look at recent Azure Updates, what's interesting, what's relevant, what's up to date. Um, Toby, would you like to start? What's what sort of top on your list of Azure updates? Uh, sure. So I, I have a couple of things that I took a look at because I've been working a lot with those. And I have a few updates around Microsoft Sentinel, a few updates on Microsoft Defender for Cloud, and then something for Cloud Adoption Framework, which is the landing zone accelerators. Um, but let's start with something on Sentinel. There's a recent preview release now where you can relate alerts to incidents, right? And this means you can add or remove alerts to or from an incident. And this is for manual or automatically 
as part of an investigation. So if you do the investigation manually, then you can uh, assign it or relate it manually. Otherwise, you can automate that. So for example, you can relate Defender for cloud alerts to incidents synchronized from Microsoft Defender 365 or Microsoft 365 Defender. So you can get those two um, to play the same game, and then you can like relate or correlate the, the alerts in between them, which is good. Otherwise, you might have an alert over here and you have another alert over there, but now you can uh, relate them to one another. And there's a few places you can use it from. It's from the investigation graph, if you use that. If you use Azure Sentinel, Microsoft Sentinel, you know you can click around to the investigation graph, and then you can click around to see what actually happened here. Why is this a thing? Where did it come from? And, and this is one place where you can use it. The other is from the API, of course, where you can do a lot of things, or from an automation playbook. So relate alerts to incidents is uh, a preview update now available in Microsoft Sentinel. And the other thing for Microsoft Sentinel, which is also a preview feature, is similar incidents. So if the other one was relate alerts to incidents, this one is about similar incidents. And that is a new tab on the incidents page where you can list other incidents that are similar to what you're currently investigating. And why is this interesting? Well, you can now find other incidents that may be part of a larger attack story. You can use a similar incident as a reference for incident handling. So learnings from the previous incidents can help you mitigate the current one that you're investigating. So you don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel here because if you already had this issue, maybe a year ago, maybe a month ago, maybe two days ago, maybe someone else in your team did it, um, then you can go back and use that as a reference to see how to fix it. And at the same time, the other, the other benefit here is you can find relevant people in your SOC, your security operating center. Like I said, if, if another person had this incident in the past or a similar incident, then you can identify who that is. And they may have handled similar incidents in the past and can then help you out if you need to pull them in. So I really like this. It's, again, strengthening the security posture and, and the SOC uh, game we have in Azure. So two small updates in Microsoft Sentinel as such but it can have a huge impact when you're you know, working with active incidents, when you're doing troubleshooting, what happened in our network? Do we have someone on the inside and you know, figuring out if it's an attack, if it's something with malicious content or not, but also if it's something that happens uh, multiple times, then you can relate incidents from similar past incidents. So pretty cool. That's my first one. What about Oops. on your side? Good stuff. On my side, this is something that's in public preview, and, and I'm fairly excited for this. Windows Admin Center in the Azure portal also now supported for Arc-enabled Windows servers and, and virtual machines. So what this means is that I might have locally hosted virtualized Windows servers in my, in my home network or in a local data center. What I can now do, I can use Azure Arc to start managing those remotely through Azure portal. But what I can also now use is I can use Windows Admin Center, which is embedded in Azure portal, and that can remotely manage my Arc enabled and managed server from Azure portal. Why this is useful is that perhaps I just need to check what updates I have in Windows, is something missing, perhaps I need to stop a service Perhaps I need to remotely connect with PowerShell. And all of this is now done through Azure Portal. So there's a nice graphical interface. 
I see the same data I see through task manager, I can remotely manage the boxes without using remote desktop to actually connect to those boxes. There's also the emulated RDP support through Azure portal to a local VM now managed with Azure Arc. So seeing it in now in public preview, I, I figured I have a couple of physical servers at home. I need to spin them up for Azure Arc, then enable Windows Admin Center. And I never have to locally connect to those boxes anymore. I get everything in Azure. And one of the benefits for this is that I would also get information to Defender for Cloud. So if those boxes have problems, Defender for Cloud would also tell that to me. So Windows Admin Center in Azure Portal for Azure Arc enabled Windows servers, not Linux boxes for now. Okay, cool. I love this. Another step in the right direction. On my end, it's Microsoft Defender for Cloud. This time, the previous one was about Sentinel. And here is a couple of interesting things that recently were announced. And I don't know if I missed them in the past or or not, because I, I did have a previous case just some weeks ago where I needed to try this out. I think this all of these things came out in May and June of this year. So they're fairly fresh. So one is, so again, for Microsoft Defender for Cloud, governance rules. So there's a new governance experience where security teams can assign remediation of security recommendations to the resource owners and then require them for a remediation schedule. And this is very nice, of course, and also something that many security and compliance frameworks mandate. I worked a lot with SOC 2 to achieve a SOC 2 type 2. And in order to do that, you had to have a remediation schedule for a lot of things like vulnerabilities that you find in code, if you find vulnerabilities on your infrastructure and things like that. So this is really good. Uh, what I really like about this is that like following these compliance and security guidelines at your organization, it can be tough. But this seems like a super valid way to enable more people in the organization to help achieve those uh, greater security postures that you really want in your tech landscape. So kind of scaling out the security work. This is something that I looked a lot in the past at how could we delegate all of the things we need to do to, do to the right people. And usually we ended up delegating that to like the, the head of uh, a division or the team lead for a division, and then they had to figure it out. But this is not optimal. Here you can delegate it to the resource owner and say, you know what, this resource is faulty, does not follow the uh, guidelines we have set forth in our organization. Then you just delegate it to the owner and say, take care of it. Otherwise, we might shut it down or you know, take whatever action you know, at, at your discretion, of course. So governance rules, super cool. Uh, another thing is filter security alerts by IP. So IP pre uh, the IP address previously only appeared in the related entities section for a single alert. Now we can filter the alerts and see only alerts for a specific IP it's not a jaw dropper feature, but it's definitely helpful when I'm analyzing attacks and, and other things. I have had this use case several times in the past and I always wondered, why can I not just search for the IP or why can I not do that from this view? Now we can do that. So not a jaw dropper, super simple, but still something to be aware of if you work a lot with Micro Defender for Cloud. So the third thing here is also in GA, it is Defender for SQL on machines for AWS or GCP. And I like this because we're 
really, you know, we're taking steps towards a multi-cloud reality where a lot of organizations are doing multi-cloud. So now you can get database protection from Defender for Cloud with added support now for SQL Service hosted in AWS or GCP. And then you can enable and enforce database protection on, for example, AWS EC2, uh, RDS Custom for SQL Server, uh, and for GCP, uh, for the GCP Compute Engine. And here's the same story as in Azure. You enable the plan for any of the aforementioned services, and all future resources in that subscription will also be protected. So just like when you enable uh, Defender for SQL in, in your Azure subscription, when you add another SQL server there, you know it's going to be protected automatically. So the same way happens in, in the other clouds. And finally, for Microsoft Defender for Cloud, and this was a long update about Microsoft Defender for Cloud, the final bit is alerts by resource group. Again, a very, very welcome feature. So in the alerts grid in Defender for Cloud, there's now a resource group column, which means you can filter, sort, and group by that column. Again, it's not a jaw dropper. You know, it's a super small feature. It's just a new column with a new field containing the resource group name, right? But it's definitely something I've struggled with in the past, given the number of alerts I had incoming. If you have 200 alerts, 500 alerts, 5,000 alerts, because you have all kinds of automation set up, super tricky to uh, you know, figure out where to even start. Now, when I can do this, I can then help reduce the noise when I know what to look for or maybe if I know where to look for it, because I might be looking for something that pertains only to a specific resource group or a specific resource that I know belonging one of these five resource groups, and then maybe I can filter on that. So short updates, small updates for Microsoft Defender for Cloud, but definitely impactful. I think the governance rules, the first one I mentioned is going to be the, the one I might use most, which is a really nice way to kind of just scale your security and compliance uh, tasks that you have for your infrastructure. So there's a lot of good stuff coming out there. I really like the governance rules for sure. I, I did have a quick look before we got started with the episodes on how does it look to configure it. Looks very, very easy to get started with, but definitely you need a process around this as well. So you can do the rules, but somebody needs to react when the rule kicks in. Um, next on my list, this is in public preview, and this is something that I've sort of been hoping to happen for quite some time. But I didn't figure that this would be possible until it was announced. So Microsoft Graph API integration with Azure Event Grid. So connecting all signals that we get from Microsoft Graph through the APIs with Azure Eventing System. Meaning that if something happens elsewhere, perhaps you add a new user in Azure AD or perhaps you add a new row in a SharePoint list in SharePoint Online, you want to get an event and you want to react to that event depending on what the payload in that event is going to be. So now you can execute and kick off any sort of uh, provisioning or, or, or act activities based on this integration. So if we add a new user in Azure AD or if a user resets their password, what we can now do, we can call an Azure function, a logic app, we can send signals to Sentinel, execute something in there like a playbook. So this essentially sort of bridges the gap in whatever is happening elsewhere 
we'd ideally like to build some sort of automation around that without us needing to pull every 30 minutes on, on, on an external system like Azure AD in hopes of finding something in the activity logs. So it's, it feels as if it's a sort of a webhook, but now for Azure Event Grid, which then gives you the freedom in Azure to do whatever you like with this. And I haven't tested this yet, but just reading this, I came up with 10 different setups and scenarios I can use this in the future. I, I really like that. I've used Azure Event Grid a couple of times um, in different scenarios, and I like this capability where you can kind of subscribe to things happening. There's events coming your way. You can just react to them and do whatever you want. You want to put them in a queue. You want to take action immediately. You want to execute an Azure function, do whatever you want. And I really, really like that the Microsoft Graph API now has an integration here. And just like you say, a user maybe resets their password, or I don't know exactly what events that you can uh, take a look at there, but I will definitely have a, a review uh, of that list because there's a lot of things that we used to do in, in my previous uh, previous company as well, where we helped customers govern their Microsoft 365 and their Azure uh, tenants. And if we could then subscribe to certain changes, um, then of course it's easier to also build rules around that saying, if this happens, you know, take this action. If that happens, alert this person. If that happens, do this in the governance tool. So I, I really like that. Um, so the, the final update on my side, um, it's around the cloud adoption framework. And there's something now called landing zone accelerators and they're updated or released now. And we're gonna probably have to spend a full episode diving into one of those to really uh, you know, unbox and unpack everything that exists inside of a landing zone accelerator. But Microsoft released three of them with the cloud adoption framework. It's the unified management and operations with Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes landing zone accelerator. It's the App Service Landing Zone Accelerator and API Management Landing Zone Accelerator. So what these different things do, so let's start with the Azure Arc-enabled Kubernetes Landing Zone Accelerator. Uh, it kind of helps you enable the targeted outcomes of maturing your hybrid practices, establishing appropriate Azure Arc-enabled Kubernetes governance, minimize the technical debt you have, considering uh, well-architected principles across all the Azure Arc-enabled Kubernetes workloads you have, Use the code base for Azure Arc Kubernetes Landing Zone Accelerator to automate all three of those above, the things we just mentioned, and then quickly access skilling resources in documentation or learning modules for the various Azure services. So what it is, it's, it's really a package, right? A Landing Zone Accelerator is a package of reference implementations, reference architectures, deployable resources, which is your infrastructure as code, and documentation. So best practices, guidelines, how to do things properly. So I really like that. So the first one being the one about unified management and operations with Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes landing zone accelerator. That is a mouthful. Uh, the other one is a bit shorter. It's Azure app service landing zone accelerator. And here is recommendations and considerations to accelerate your app service adoption. So you use the architectural approach uh, as a set of design guidelines. If you're starting fresh, and you can use them as an assessment for existing implementation to see if you're doing things the right way. It support, supports both multi-tenant app services and app service environment deployments. 
reference implementation covers an architecture that uses an internal app service environment v3 for line of business apps and it contains also design guidelines example conceptual reference architectures and of course the deployable code which is usually where i go to learn and here you get the actual deployed resources in your subscription and you can find that on github we'll put the links in the show notes and then the final landing zone accelerator that was released is the api management one same thing here, reference implementation that covers uh, architecture where customers can then host both internal and external facing APIs uh, on an internal API management instance. And then use it uses App Gateway as the web application firewall in a single region deployment. Here you get the modular approach to customize environment variables. You get the design guidelines, example reference architectures, and you can deploy the code from GitHub just like the previous examples. So this is pretty cool. I don't want to dive into details about each of those right now, but I do think we're on the same page when I say we want to probably take this for a spin, deploy this ourselves, really test it out, perhaps the API management or the app services one, because I don't really have any Azure Arc in my subscriptions, and then evaluate you know, what is lacking, what exists, what do we get out of the box? How does this work when I'm already in the cloud can I use it to kind of assess my current situation and can I learn something from it? Uh, and how does it work with kind of a greenfield scenarios where you don't have anything in the cloud, you just need to get started and deploy something according to best practices and then kind of kick the tires from there. Then that's also a great way to use the landing zone accelerators. You can just kind of land and accelerate. So that's pretty cool. And those exist also in the cloud adoption framework. So again, we'll put the links in the show notes. I, I like that Microsoft is, is quite actively now pushing out the landing zone accelerator documentations and recommendations as part of the frameworks. So plenty to digest in there. And I'm just looking at the unified management and operations with Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes landing zone accelerator. And, and it's, it's heavy stuff, but in a good way. The last one on my list, and this is now generally available, Updates for resource configuration changes. And I've somehow missed the, the preview for this. And this came out in early 2022 as preview. Now it's stable and generally available. So what this does is that if you use Azure Resource Graph to see, uh, to do queries, to do reporting, to see what's happening, there's a new dimension now called resource changes. So you can use KQL, the Custo query language, to query this dimension called resource changes to see what changed in Azure Resource Manager. And you can have, of course, alerts for this, but now you can also do reporting. So in the past two months, we've changed this, this, and this. So you can query the changes at scale to subscriptions, management groups, tenants, and I, I feel this is perhaps something that sort of slipped under the radar for a lot of people, because unless you're really deep into Azure Resource Graph, you probably do not see that, oh, there's some new stuff in here that I could utilize for my internal governance needs, where I would use see, see you, you most benefit for this. Yeah, I, I really like that this is now in GA. I wrote a blog post a long time ago about you know how to find resource changes or changes to your resources in Azure, and you use the Azure Resource Graph Explorer, and you could and write queries to figure things out, and you can use the, the UI. So I like that this is now happening, 
because there's a lot of use cases. And just imagine one thing that I that I always try to figure out. I haven't checked if the GA version now can do that. One thing I always wanted to do is alert me when this happens. Like someone changes the value of an environment variable in this app service. If someone changes a, a variable there, I need to know it. Not just need to have it logged somewhere in the system, but send me an email or whatever action I need to take. Send me a Teams message. That's something that I really missed. I, I don't know if that supports that now, but definitely something to check out because there's a lot of value in that. Um, yeah, this I, is I think from, from my side, these were all the updates that I had, uh, but I know there were also some updates around Azure Firewall that we discussed. And do you know what that was about? Yeah, I didn't really have time yet to dive deep into that one. And Azure Firewall, it's obviously super useful, but due to cost and, and the added complexity, I often see companies just go with web application firewall and or Azure front door instead of the real firewall, if you will. So there are some new features in there. Um, interestingly, there's a new TLS inspection uh, certification is now generally available as well as the intrusion detection and prevention system has a new signatures lookup available. So fairly tiny bits in the in the overall Azure Firewall uh, functionality. Uh, but these and a couple of others are announced now, but I think we need to take this for a spin as well as Azure Firewall itself. And, and then we can probably talk more about how this affect and, and when should you use this as opposed to web application firewall, perhaps. All right, very nice. Alrighty, so the last bit, the unexpected question. And, and Toby, this week, it's your turn to ask me. Okay, so I, I thought about this a while. What mythical creature would improve the world most if it existed? Unexpected question for sure. Um, <laughs> so in the Finnish sort of literature history, uh, we have about 10 mythical creatures locally. So so I don't know all of those. So if, if you mention them by name, I can say, yeah, I've heard about this when I was a kid. But one of those is is is, is a troll. And, and, and the Finnish name for the troll is Heesi. And uh, the, the behavior is that it may attack travelers in remote areas, uh, may steal valuable objects and stuff like this. And I think this was used when we were kids to, to say that unless you do this and that, unless you clean your, clean your room or make your bed, then, then the heasy will come and take you. That was how kids were raised back in the 1980s. Um, so why would this improve the world? Well, because also when I was a kid, there was this uh, saying that if you had trouble pronouncing the S uh, sound, uh, you, would, you would have this proverb that you would repeat over and over in hopes that you would eventually learn how to pronounce it correctly. And, and it relates to this one. And, and I can just say it out loud now in Finnish, of course, and then I can try quickly to explain that. And, and, the, and the Finnish uh, sort of riddle or proverb that was said is Vesi hisi, sihisi, sinisessa hississa. So it's a lot mm -hmm. of S 
sounds. Bless we, you. We, we, <laughs> we just have one S sound in Finnish. And what it means is the hisi troll, but the water version of that was, was hissing in the elevator that was blue. Okay. It makes yeah, that no, makes, makes perfect sense. <laughs> it makes no sense, but I'm imagining now having a mythical creature, a creature, uh, hissing in the elevators. Whenever you would go to an office building, there would be this troll, fairly friendly, but sort of hissing and, and making hissy sounds in the elevator. I think that would be our the Finnish contribution to the world, to making the world better. Okay. <laughs> cool. Exactly. Uh, unexpected Alrighty. answer. <laughs> so I will, I will, I will put the uh, the riddle in the show notes as well. If you just want to try read it yourself. Alrighty. Thank you for joining again on the Azure updates episode, and we hope you join us next week as well. All right. See you then.